Hello and welcome to Dateline New Haven on WNHH New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick. Well, it's election season. We know that headline. November 8th. We know there are people running for Congress, Senate, state representative. But did you know there's also a competitive race for probate judge in New Haven? Yes, we elect our probate judge every four years in New Haven. And we have two candidates vying for that position. And they're here today for their great debate of their campaign. We have the Democratic candidate, Amerigo Carcia, and the Independent Party and Republican-endorsed candidate, Gerald Barber. Thank you so much for coming in, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Before we start the debate, I want to say something. You correct me if I'm wrong. The probate court, here's what the judge is in charge of, and the court's at 200 Orange Street. is for the region. The court handles trusts, wills, estates, and guardianship decisions, resolves disputes over property, appoints guardians and approve adoptions and conservators, and approves name changes, and can terminate parental rights. Is that the basic idea? That's pretty accurate. Yeah, also intellectually disabled, so we do guardianships for them as well. Mm-hmm. States for guardianships for uh, minors as well. All right, I'm going to ask both of you, you get a little close to that mic, like oh. you're almost touching our card. So my first question, and it goes first to Gerald Barber, is why are you seeking the position? Well, I'm seeking the position of New Haven probate judge uh, to continue my service to the community. I think it's an important uh, role to play uh, to connect with the community and also to uh, help individuals that are in need, whether it's family, elders. So I think it's an important step, and it's just an extension of my community service. And Amarico, why are you seeking the position? Similarly, um, I've been doing this for the last 28 years. I've uh, worked with the probate courts very, very closely, um, all in not only in New Haven but throughout the region. And with that, it has been great joy to me in helping the people. Um, I think this is the next step where I can actually use all of the, the knowledge and information, the caring that I've gotten and received to, to better the community and as well as the individual people. Following up on what you both just said, let's go to first Amerigo. Why, what qualifications of yours make you the right person to be probate judge and, and how does yours fit? Very good. Um, so I've been a practicing attorney for 28 years. Uh, I've practiced at just about all the courts. Uh, I used to do a lot of juvenile work. I used to do a lot of family work. What I found that was my niche, if you will, or if my most uh, cared about was the probate work because we involve not only children, elderly, the, the sick, the disabled. We're able to provide them with so many services at the community level uh, where the other courts that I find is so difficult, they're so impersonal, very difficult to get that hand-to-hand feel that mm-hmm. you're getting in probate. Um, for me and what I've done over the last 20, 28 years is – basically provided that service that as an attorney and making sure that people's rights are protected. I want to be able to do that as a judge and make sure that all the parties in, involved in probate get the fair and equal rights um, that they deserve. Jerry Barber, what makes you the most qualified the position? How do you fit the profile? Well, uh, thanks for asking. I've uh, been a practicing attorney since 1991. So I've been a litigator here in Connecticut, um, worked uh, deputy court for Corporation Counsel for the City of Haven in the 90s, been in private practice since then. Um, I believe that I have the experience necessary uh, as a 30-year litigator, uh, and also in the last 10 years or so, moving my practice uh, towards elder care uh, and working closely with the probate court uh, as an appointed uh, conservator, 
uh, guardian um, and just working on some of those difficult cases. Um, I just have a connection to the community, and I think that that's important, uh, that you're able to bring your uh, knowledge of something and also your experience in the community. So I think that uh, will work well as a probate judge. All right. I'm going to ask me, tell me an encounter you've had in your job with probate or separate probate that demonstrates why the work matters and why you can play a role. Tell me a story. I'm going to go first to Jerry. In depth, tell me something that happened once while you're dealing with some kind of case that shows why you're the right person and what you learned from it. Okay. Uh, well, just my in, the, in this past six years, one experience where I was appointed uh, as a conservator and, and met with uh, my client uh, at the hospital. Uh, they had uh, just had a stroke, and their desire was to get back home and uh, going through all the red tape that was involved to get that done, uh, meaning setting up care at the home, uh, making sure the rehab was in place, uh, getting doctors' uh, consents, things like that. Uh, and um, was this an elderly person? An elderly person, yes. So when they had the stroke, was it? Did you have to determine whether the person is qualified to make choices? Well, they're qualified to make choices unless they are mentally right, mentally right, unless they're uh, declared incompetent. So it is a case of again, uh, just as an attorney, you you try to do what's best for your client. And if the decision to go home was not in the best interest of uh, her, then we would not have done it. Uh, but in working with the hospital, working with the uh, the doctors, uh, working with the care facilities, and having the in-home uh, help, we were able to successfully get her back home. And she spent the last three or four months of her life at home as opposed to in a uh, nursing home. So I, and was I think, that through probate? Uh, I was appointed uh, through their probate system and given that, that case. Mm-hmm. So that, again, pointed out the importance of going beyond um, – you know, just being the attorney or the person, uh, but just getting involved with your conserved person and and trying to determine their wishes and trying to the best you can see if you can get that done. So, Amarico, you had a little time to think about this. Tell me about a case. Um, absolutely. Uh, difficulty is picking which one. I, I have so many. Uh, but I, I go back to, I want to say about uh, almost 15 years ago, um, when St. Raphael's was still St. Raphael's and not a uh, a category of Yale at this point, or campus of Yale. Um, I was appointed for a woman who had been brought to the hospital on a 15-day paper, <clears throat> which means that they believed her to be mentally ill, and they were going to keep her for 15 days for observation. And the woman literally lived across the street from the St. Raphael's campus. Very nice woman, older woman, lived alone. Um, she had the reason she was brought in was that the police were constantly called. She kept calling the police saying that someone was coming to the door and telling her that they were going to take her house. Well, they thought this was outrageous. She was brought into the hospital, um, and the doctors immediately sort of dis- disavowed everything she said. They had no, no desire to actually look up or find out whether or not there was any truth to it. It was really those people put up the signs to say, you sell your house for 1-800-JUNK? No. Worse than that. It was actually the hospital. And, uh, and, and so when she got in and the psychiatrist go and meet with her, she says, you are trying to take my house, and I don't like it, and I don't want you to come back to the house. Well, they certainly thought at that point she needed to be committed. Um, I was appointed. We asked for what's called a probable cause hearing, so we go up. We have a hearing. I meet with her, and I find out where she lives. I find out from her son that the hospital actually has been bombard- bombarding her with mail as well as people actually knocking on her door. Saying what? Because saying she owed? They wanted, no, they wanted to buy her property to expand, to expand the oh hospital. Oh, my goodness. Exactly. How old was this woman? 
Uh, she was in her 70s. She was about 72. And her son visited her every day. So it was really a tragedy that he didn't know where she, where she went. She literally had called him. He was working. His, his wife at the time said, oh, no, she's home. He went to visit her the next day. She was not home. So, so how did you, fi- you find her? Well, I got from, from the woman, I got his information. And I left a note on the door because she did not have a phone number for him. She couldn't remember the phone number. So she had some issues. But they were not the issues at the hospital had, had concerns about. They, they thought she was delusional. They thought all these other issues. Um, and what that made me understand from my perspective as an attorney as well as the judge, because we had to protect her freedoms. She should not have been in the hospital. She got released once we had the hearing. Um, and we found, you know, it was ironic because the, at the time there was a hospital attorney. Um, I actually asked the attorney if she had any knowledge because, you know, she, usually the attorneys don't testify at the, at the court proceedings. In this case, the attorney testified, and she said, we have been acquiring properties, and that is one of them that we really want. Wow. And it really made me focus on how delicate it is to be confined to a hospital and how much power a doctor has at times over our person and our freedom. Um, and from that, it was, it, I've always fought diligently to make sure that if it's a scenario where they don't follow up with information, that I try to do my own investigation. Um, and I think that the, the judge at the time was Judge Keyes. He certainly knew uh, enough to, to make sure that we had information and to protect her both from releasing her for not being confined on a psychiatric patient as well as making sure that her son was involved. You're listening to the knockdown, drag out debate over who should be the next <laughs> probate judge in New Haven. It actually is a race. It matters. Real people's lives. And we have two gentlemen here who are, and they aren't gentlemen, running for this office, Democrat Amarico Garcia and independent slash Republican candidate Gerald Barber. Following up with the last que- question, you both talked about how you've been advocate for vulnerable people and how this, that experience prepares you for the job. Jerry Barber also talked about making sure all people's interests are protected. Now I want to ask, I'm going to start first with you, Enrico. Sure. Tell me about a case where you saw, while you were sympathetic to somebody who was vulnerable, who needed your representation or somebody else's in probate court, maybe some other case you're sitting at, where you saw a case where maybe the big bad hospital or the, the <clears> relative <throat> who wanted something in the will, that if actually there was a need for a probate judge to not go with the sympathetic person and whether you think you'd be able to do that. Absolutely. And I, I think the story I just gave actually is some of that, but I'll go beyond that at this point. Um, to, in conservatorships, we see this quite often. Um, all people who are conserved want the most freedom and the most access to the community. Oftentimes, the, the, the conservatees, the person who's over them, is trying to make it the simplest life possible. So they want to put them into a nursing home or they want to put them in a rest home, somewhere they can be observed beyond the, the, the mere observation of the conservative. So that's when I think the, that we're at the most vulnerable because it's so difficult to balance those two uh, issues. So I was asking one, if you've seen a case where you thought the other side needed the protection, if you think you'd be able to do that given your experience as a probate judge. So, yes. Yeah, so I, absolutely. And I apologize. I, I give you a little okay. quicker, quicker. You want a specific case or? Yeah. All right. I don't know so, why you think you could do it. Yeah. All right. So I'll give you the case where I was actually representing the parents who were trying to conserve this young lady, um, she had done everything she needed to do. So I wasn't representing her at the time. But because of her past was so entrenched, she had drug issues, she had other issues, she really wasn't making a good life for herself. Um, but at this point, she had gone through, she went to rehab, 
She got herself settled. She really was getting to the point where she didn't need any more help. The parents, because of the past, because of when you're a parent, you always feel that love, like I, I've got to protect you. Um, and that's what the parents were doing. And, of course, I was their attorney, so they were paying me to make sure that I represented that to the court. And I saw the judge, and I saw how the judge, one, protected the parents' concerns because he said, I understand, I'm a parent, I get it, and this is what we all want. But you have to move forward. This young lady's done everything she needs to do and that she needs to be able to prove herself, and this is what we're going to do. And I think that if I had been her attorney, I would have absolutely been able to advocate that. And if you were the judge? Oh, absolutely. I think I could have seen both sides of that. But I think, now listen to you guys, I think about how this might be the ultimate King Solomon type of judgeship. <laughs> where you, you know, you, you say, oh, well, we'll carve the baby in half and then you see who the real mother is. That, that, these let's hear the, some more of your questions because I've got a few of those stories too. But let's, uh... <laughs> Those are tough. I mean, yeah. Yeah, how you kind of live with yourself. You, whoever wins, you better start getting ready. You're going to have to right. go home and uh, maybe pour yourself a drink or <laughs> say an extra couple of prayers and get you through. So, Gerald Barber, how about you tell me about some case where you saw that the sympathetic person actually – while sympathetic needed to be ruled against and whether you think you could do that? Uh, yes. Uh, one that comes immediately to mind and is really uh, an example of several that you do as a conservator and you have an, an adult conservative or, or a person and that individual um, needs help. However, they believe that they can do things on their own. You know, they can pay their bills. Uh, they can spend their mm-hmm. money. They can shop. Uh, and they they want to be independent. And uh, sometimes there's a conflict in being a partner with them. Well, let me help you versus, well, let me just, you know, meet you once a month. And then we'll see where, if, you know, if your money lasted for the, the next uh, uh, 30 days. So there's a there's always that challenge in being able to say, um, let's walk together. You know, one of the first things I do when I'm appointed is immediately go see the client, whether it's home, whether it's the hospital, even before the paperwork is in there, because I want to meet with them to try to establish, you know, uh, a, uh, a team type of uh, uh, atmosphere where we can do this together. But it's important to know that sometimes it's in their best interest to overrule that interest, to say, no, you really can't, uh, and really we are going to dole things out. So do you have, can you think of a specific case like that? Like uh, Amerigo told us about where he actually, because a lawyer, you have to represent your client. And there are questions about how far you go, but you right. definitely have to represent your client's issues, make sure they get a fair hearing, even though you think the judge made the right call against you. Can you right. think of a case like that where you think you could have been that judge? Um, well, I think in, in ruling, uh, uh, well, again, everything goes to a hearing, but it is a case a lot of times your your client will file a motion. I do not want you to be my conservator anymore. Uh, and so there's that conflict and you, you're at a hearing. And- I didn't mean as the lawyer. I meant where you saw you were doing your best for your client, but you understood the judge ruled against you and the reason of whether you could be the judge in that case. I see. I, I, I don't have one that immediately comes to mind. It's okay. Yeah. Okay, you're listening to Amerigo Garcia and Gerald Barber, the two candidates for probate judge in this November 8th election. It matters, folks, so we're really glad that we have them here to, to give us some time at this debate. Uh, the next question is going to go first to Jerry Barber. Who is a judge you admire as a role model and why? It doesn't have to be a probate judge. Being a judge is an important role. And uh, who's a judge in history or current times you really admire and what's the reason? Uh, well, again, that comes straight out of the box. Uh, you know, Supreme Court Justice, the late uh, Thurgood Marshall. Uh, obviously, uh, he was a NAACP attorney. I worked on the Brown v. Board of Education. 
that may be the reason why I went to law school. Uh, but again, being the first Supreme Court justice uh, and again, just doing the right thing at the right time. Uh, so, yeah, that's hands down uh, Thursday Marshall. They received some recordings released or interviews that hadn't been previously released. That was so interesting. He talked about how he was able in the South and he was coming up as a lawyer to play cards at night with like the worst Klan racists. Right. And he felt like they told you what they said. You're up front. You could you could deal. Like, I wonder whether that kind of helped right. him succeed as an right. uh, interesting guy. Sure. Definitely uh, a hero. Uh, again, well, uh, my family just has a, a history uh, with the civil rights movement. My dad, uh, late John Barber, uh, was a speechwriter for Martin King. Uh, so we've been in uh, this community since Wait, then. Was that the John Barber who went to Yale Law School? Yes, sir. Yes. I'm uh, a man. Right. He did two years of law school and then... The movie, I'm right, a man. I'm a man, right. That I is actually, an amazing movie. I actually appear in that movie as a five-year-old in that movie. Do you remember the scene with him in the back of the car with Earl Williams? That's and he's it. holding the spear That's on it. the... That's my dad. Oh, my, my dad. goodness. Right. And have you read Yohuru Williams's book about all the subterfuge against your dad with Dick Lee and everybody well, because actually, he was calling urban renewal into account? Yeah, actually, uh, he asked for uh, papers from both Earl and I to, to help him write that book. Yes. Um, so, uh, again, it is a case of, I mean, going back to your point, sometimes it was easier down south because you it was blatant and you knew where you were, you know. Although, uh, like some people, right. like Reverend Edmonds, they were threatening to right. kill his whole family sure. and bomb them. So and then up here, there. where yeah. it's, it was more subtle, uh, and when the movement moved from the south to the to the north, uh, Chicago and New York, uh, um, so sometimes it is um, uh, better to see it in it in its uh, raw form. And I always thought that you know a civil rights march was just a march down through a town, and that could be so threatening. Uh, all they were doing was marching, but it was just you know getting to people's consciousness to say this is not right. And I think as I conclude my legal career, uh, I think it's it's a great step because, as you're saying, for 30 years it's been win or lose in federal court, state court, and criminal court. But in this court, it really is doing justice, meaning you know you need to be humble, you need to uh, show mercy, and you ultimately have to do justice. So I think it's it's a, a fitting uh, how long point. When, how long did your father live to? Uh, my dad was killed in a uh, car accident in 1979. I was oh, 15 sorry. years old. Yeah. Wow. What an intense life he had. Oh, anyway, absolutely. I'm sorry. There's this amazing stuff about his dad in that Yahoo Williams book. Absolutely. I, I remember Earl Williams. He was in, I used to oh, practice yeah, yeah. in my building. Yeah. He's a good guy. And what it was, he was defending his father because his father, to make a point, was holding a spear right. and wearing having clothing on the green. And it was just great re- reactions from everyone in the public of what they right. thought about the man holding the spear. Yeah. 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 Anyway, we got off track. Enrico Garcia, who's a judge you admire as a role model and why? So there are a few, but I think because of the nature that I've been uh, working in probate and doing the probate things, I, I think, uh, you know, Judge Keyes, um, and he, he represented a lot of different aspects of, of what probate does. Um, I, I think he went above and beyond. So probate is a statutory, so we do everything by the book, theoretically. Um, unfortunately, our lives are not by the book. Every family, every situation is just a little different. Um, and, and Judge Keyes had a, a, just a keen way of making the law replicate what we needed at the time we needed it. Um, to me, that was it's, it's, a, it's a difficult task. And You're talking judges, about the balance between needing to be completely legit with the law and finding that room within it to get a result. Correct. Correct. To get yeah. the right result, to ensure that the family is in the right position or the party is in the right position, um, but yet the law doesn't necessarily 
it, it's it's sort of in their favor, but not quite. And making that balance. And on the subject of role models, is it fair to say that being the son of a civil rights activist kind of set you on a path of the law as as a way to cre- pursue justice? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the reason why my dad never finished Yale Law School is because in the 60s, uh, the New Haven Police Department gave a handwriting sample of one of his exams to the New Haven Police Department. And when he found out about it, he was so upset. And that was it. Uh, so it was a case of finishing that uh, in, in that sense. And, and one aspect drove me to the, the law practice. I just want to make sure because we've got so much time. I'm so right. interested about John Barber thing. I wanted to right. then throw it to sure. Amerigo to ask him, like, what set you off on the role of being a lawyer on the path now to maybe being a judge and why? So uh, my mind's a little deeper story, I guess. Um, my, my dad was an immigrant that came from Italy with uh, five children. Northern um, or southern? Southern. I'm Alfie. Because it's kind of really into Oh, well, so, so him, so. like the rest of like nine-tenths of the- Of New Haven. Of it, yeah. Correct, correct. Beautiful. Um, Most beautiful place I've been to in my entire life. Absolutely. So when uh, we got to New Haven, my parents were entrepreneurs. We call them entrepreneurs. My dad was just working hard all the time. Um, so he had bought a business, bought a store, a little grocery store. Um, and he needed to get, first, had to get his naturalization papers done. Then he had to get his licensing for the beer permits. Then he had to go through and you know actually complete the sale- and so when I was a kid, I was four years old, we we're going through all this. We used to actually go to 129 Church Street, where my dad's attorney was, I would say twice a week. It seemed to me that, you know, it was always, we were always in front of this guy. And I really, I was four years old. I had no idea why we were doing this. And, you know, when you're four years old, your dad's the best guy in the world. No, nothing's better than your dad. Um, but we would keep going to this guy. So one day I asked my dad, I said, my dad, why do we have to see this guy so much? Why is it so important? And, and my dad was a great guy, but he was always nice to this gentleman. Oh, it, so my dad says, because everything you do, we need a beer license. We need to buy this property. We need to do all these things. You have to have the attorney back in. You have to make sure that he does all the papers right. You have to make sure that he knows the law. He's the one who's going to make sure that you get it done correctly. I thought, in, why in the world would you want to be anyone else? Not that I didn't want to be my dad who, again, entrepreneur, plumber, did, did wonderful things for the community. But I always thought, in my, that, that's the guy you want to be. People need to come to you, and you can help them. For my family, it was a godsend. My parents became immigrants, uh, not immigrants, but they became naturalized, had a, a beautiful life, and they you know, grew, grew wealth, enjoyed themselves, had six children, myself being the only one born here in the U.S. Um, so that's why I, I ended up being in the law. And from four years on, if you asked me what was I going to be, I was going to be an attorney. There was no question in my mind. Um, and I just had to work hard to get there because I wasn't as smart as everyone else, but I made it work. And I, and I certainly, uh, my dad was very proud, and, and that was the other reason, so make my dad proud. Jay Juan Carter says, good afternoon. Thanks for listening, Jay Juan. So he was a plumber but needed a beer license? No, so, so he was a, he was a, a, yes, he had a, a plumber's license. That's why I say my dad had a bunch of uh, entrepreneurships. But because when he initially got here, he couldn't go out and get his license immediately because of the language barrier as well as not having his immigration status uh, completed. He, he was... Uh, he had a green card to work here, but he did not have his naturalization papers. Gotcha. So they bought a business, which was a grocery store down on Kimberly Avenue in New Haven what was it in the Hill. Uh, at the time, it was called Eddie's. Um, and my dad kept that because my dad's name was Ettore or E-T-T-O-R-E. Wasn't Eddie still around, like, even it's, not that long ago? So Eddie's, so they changed. <laughs> so when we, my, fa- my father got it in 70, 1970, our store was called Eddie's. My dad changed it because then a block further up on Howard Avenue, they became another Eddie's. Oh, okay. Um, and my dad's 
changed it to Grant and Kimberly, which now it's actually not Grant and Kimberly anymore. But um, so in that business, um, he needed to have a beer license. And there wow. were lots of people who would you could pay to do that. They would come in and they get lend them lend you their name and so forth. My dad didn't want to do that. That's why we went to the attorney. The attorney got all of the paperwork squared away so that my dad could have the beer license and have the entire business in his name. Um, and, and to me, that was important back then because I saw how much my father appreciated that. Okay, you're listening to The Great Debate. Who's going to be our next probate judge? Is it going to be Amarico Garcia or Gerald the Barber? You're going to decide. You can listen right now here on WNHH FM, Stateline New Haven, to see why. Next question, you know, we're round robbering. Go first to Amarico. What, if anything, needs to change in the probate court, and what is your platform about what you're going to do with the office? Keep it going the way it is or make any evolution? So, again, the probate court, statutory court, very difficult to say I want to change a lot of things. There are some things that I need to change, excuse me, I think need to be changed. Um, it, it's very, it's, and again, I, I, I admire Judge Graves for doing as much work as he's done with the pandemic. The court is an upfront court. We need to see people. We need to talk to people. We're involved in people's lives intimately, in, in my opinion, um, in all aspects of their lives sometimes. So it's been difficult now with the pandemic having the court closed. We need to get that open. We need to be able to have some people at the court that can actually do some good community relations things. Um, I think the, the staff there is phenomenal. I don't plan on changing any of them. I've been friends with them for, for many, many years. I, I think it's been difficult to get that access to them a little bit, and I think it's been difficult for the community to realize why they don't have as much access. So is the, are the hearings in person or are they remote? So right now they're still remote. Um, they're working on that. They're probably they're going to have some, I guess, probate admin, which kind of delegates a little bit of that, has indicated that you can have a bifurcated version. You can have some remote and some not. Um, I think, you know, trials, Jerry will, will attest, I mean, do a trial on a remote on a camera doesn't work. You really need to be in person. Um, mm -hmm. But, I mean, those are the most recent aspects. I think that overall what I think I personally and what my platform just to kind of is, is two things. One is I think we need to do more community services, more um, support services for the children. So the Children's Court does a great job. We have social workers there. We're able to provide some services. I think we need to expand that in some way. There are so many community groups. And the more I walk and the more I talk and the more you learn about all these people working in individuals everywhere, um, but never organized, never coming to the court, never having the ability to assist or back one, one another. I think I'd like to try to get them organized. So you're saying something. get community groups that help children into the proceedings to be on site to help. Correct. And you'd like to have more in-person proceedings than there are now. Correct. Yep. Okay. And, and in, in addition to that, I mean, also with, you know, the, mentally, the mental health issues. We have so many mental health concerns or, 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 or I say people, but uh, clients and, and, and that need extra services. There are services out there. I, I worked with the VA for many years, you know, for 20 years. Um, and sometimes the, C, the, the VA has enormous services for the veterans. Sometimes they don't know about them. They can't get that information. Um, so I'd like to be able to, to, to facilitate somehow knowing them enough so that I can give them out, dis disseminate that information. Not so even, to have more information available about mental health services. Correct. Right. And, and all that works around that, too, because oftentimes mental health services also has to incorporate housing. Um, sometimes you can't get the services you need because you don't have fixed housing or, or, or a permanent place to live. Um, sometimes you can't get benefits because of not having a permanent place to live. So those issues, and there are groups and organizations out there. In fact, I, I met a gentleman in Westville who had the uh, fair housing something or other. I can't think of it now. It's not coming to me. But, you know, I, I, he had a T-shirt on. 
And I said, I've never heard of this group. He says, oh, well, we, you know, we provide meals um, for people who are homeless and so forth. I said, okay, well, you go down to the, you know, the Church on the Green does that all the time, and there's always services. Um, he says, no, 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 we do this separately. I said, well, what other organizations? Said, no, no, we just do it on our own. I'm thinking to myself, that doesn't work because that's, that's a resource that we should use if we can um, for our elderly, for our veterans, for, you know, other things. Um, I did get his information. I, I wish I had it handy because I could, I would love to plug him for it. Um, because I think that he actually, you know, he was explaining it to me and he was doing a great, it wasn't Dr. Doing... Phil, was it? No, okay. no. Gerald Barber, what is your platform? What, if anything needs to change or evolve at the court, if you're elected? Well, if I'm elected, I would try to move, uh, 200 Orange Street, the probate court even further into the community. Um, both, uh, Amaruka and I, uh, just briefly met, uh, with, uh, Judge Graves just two weeks ago. Uh, about some initiatives that he had hoped to do uh, prior to his retirement. Uh, the pandemic and things got in the way. Uh, but more to the point of just making sure that individuals know uh, what the probate court is, why it's important, not only for estate planning, uh, but also just uh, the services for, uh, as uh, Emerico said, um, mentally challenged individuals. Uh, that uh, it's just not something that happens when someone passes away. Uh, so it's important uh, that they know that this court uh, is there for them and it can help them even uh, uh, before something bad happens. And were you saying you'd like to move the court from 200 Orange Street to a new location? Well, again, once the pandemic ends, we can have uh, you know public sessions. Uh, sometimes we're at the hospital. Uh, sometimes we can be in community centers uh, to bring it closer to individuals, even in, in uh, nursing homes, things like that, that. They don't have to be formal on the record hearings, but information sessions, and here's what we do, and here's where we are. I think that would go a long way with uh, making it even more important here in the New Haven community. Anything else? Um, beyond that, I, I, again, I, I salute uh, you know those that have come before us, both uh, Judge Keyes and Judge Graves. They've done an incredible job with the busiest probate court in the state, mm -hmm. uh, being keeping it open and uh, doing what needed to be done to make it effective, uh, customer-friendly. Uh, just continuing those those legacies. It's the busiest in the state. Yes. Does it cover City New Haven and anywhere else? Uh, City of New Haven. Oh. All right. One question I wanted to ask you folks is: Should this be an elected position? We're going to go swing now. Your turn. You go first, Jerry Barber. Should the probate judge be elected? Why or why not? Well, I believe it should be uh, uh, because it is, you know, uh, for lack of a better description, a people's court. Uh, it's not one for winners and losers. It's it's trying to do justice for families involved going through a, mm -hmm. a difficult time. Uh, it is a case that it is the only elected uh, judgeship in the state. Uh, and um, um, I guess personally, I, I also, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I'm on the independent uh, line, uh, had the petition to become an independent candidate. Uh, all my life I've been a, a Democrat, born and raised a Democrat. Uh, but when I, uh, and Judge Graves uh, approached me about running for this office, and I approached the party, the party fathers that be, and said, well, we've already have a candidate. And in that sense, I couldn't even get nominated at the convention. And I said, well, I believe that the people, as opposed to the party, should elect the next probate judge. Uh, mm -hmm. So that is why I think it's important uh, that it's not something that machines or politics or chairmen should decide. It's something the people should do. And I, I, I firmly believe that that's uh, well, not only why I'm running, but why I think uh, the judge should. And what does it mean that you're with the independent party and that you're on the Republican line? Because I notice your signs don't say Republican. What is there anything what the party stand for that have to do with the judgeship? Uh, again, 
the the cross endorsement from the Republican Party again. Uh, they reached out to me. I reached out to them because I'm a novice to the, the political game, and it was a case of saying uh, uh, I met with them, met with their uh, town committee, and, and told them who I was and why they unanimously gave me their cross endorsement. And I appreciate that. And uh, Jim Carlson is a, is a great guy, and he's he's pointed out, hey, here's how politics works and things like that. Uh, so it is what it is. Yes, my name will appear on the ballot until. What I mean is that the party line meaning it sounds like you're saying the meaning of running as an independent is that you're saying the Democratic Party was closed to your being considered. That's correct. And the people's choice. Is there anything else have to do philosophically with like the conservative or liberal or centrist views of the parties? That does that relate to probate court? Well, I really don't believe that those relate to probate court. It, mm-hmm. it really was a question of ballot access, not waiting four years, uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's why. I came this way, you know, my wife, my kids, the, you know, they're still members of the Democratic Party. Uh, so in that sense, those type of politics don't run in, come into this, play in this, uh, this election. Uh, but it was a case I, I thought was I a little important. bit of echo of John Barber. But <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Marie do I hear an echo of your father as an immigrant family being a Democrat? What does it mean that you're a Democrat and should it be elected? Absolutely. Um, it does mean something to me as being a Democrat. I mean, you're correct. My dad was a Democrat. And he believed in that. He believed in family. He believed in community. He believed in, in, the, in the hierarchy of making sure that our communities work together and work well together. And I think the Democrats absolutely show that um, to make sure that we're perpetrate. Or that's the right word. That's not the right word. Not the right word. Promoting. I'm not promoting. Promoting. All right. Let's start with promoting. Although um, perpetrating, I, you could say under circumstances. Yeah. You, you got so you're tongue tied. So at the being moment, a Democrat I, is that you, you is changed that, the question on me there. So is it relevant I, that you're a Democrat? It is relevant that I'm a Democrat. I think that um, my values are the same as the Democratic values. Um, again, family, community, providing people with what's best for them. Um, and I try to do that both at the, the level of the judge and certainly try to provide that at the level of an attorney at this point. Um, and I think I've done that all of my life. And do you agree with your opponent that this should be an elected position? So that's interesting. I, I You know, I do. Um, I do because I think, you know, this is a court that's been around since 1666. Really? Uh, yeah. I think it's, uh, Before there was the United States of America. Well, again, because, yeah, because the, cause it's the people's, it was, it was providing the people with someone to help them make these decisions, help them actually disseminate and make decisions about where their property went, what was going on. That's why we have a right to make um, the decisions over property lines. You know, that, it, these are old things we hardly ever actually do in probate anymore. But we can make those declarations and say, okay, yep, you own this and you own that. Um, very rarely done now because everything's actually you know, on paper and record recording and so forth. So I do agree that it should be um, elected. It's very difficult to do because we come up every four years rather than every two years. People don't really always realize that it's they not have the, It's not the municipal election year either, right. but it's municipal. It's always, office, right, it's always on the state. that has municipal lines. Yeah. Correct. So we always have, not that, that was a, you know, again, all the, all the parties are, are important. But we have, we have the federal, you know, federal senators, the federal uh, representatives. We have the governor. Um, no one's looking at, you know, row A ten where I'm at. You know, uh, I'm the last guy in that line. Row ten. Row ten. <laughs> That's right. That's hey right. everybody, but, we want you to stay awake at the polls. Don't get too confused. <laughs> Make it all the way right. to row ten. <laughs> That's exactly right. I, I do. I and I, and again, I think people. I can think. I can feel that people will do that, especially because there are so many good people running. Um, but it's still hard. You know, I, I, I concerned about that 10 and, and then, you know, moving well, now forward. we're having this great debate here in WNHHFM about probate judge. So we're going to get him to care folks. Right. Okay, folks, before we get the final statements, I want you each to ask each other a question 
starting with Amerigo Carcio oh. to Gerald Barber. I, I forgot we were going to do this, so give me a second. I'm just going to. Simple question. Simple question. Sorry, I just <laughs> nothing difficult or complicated. Just uh, again, I know you're a litigator. I know you've done many years of that. Um, do you feel that that's a, a better position to be in, to be judge, rather than someone who's been you know in the in the actual area of the law? Well, I think it it adds to your resource bank the fact that uh, you know you have to stand up in court, think on your feet, make an argument certain times within time limits. So it adds to the experience. So I don't think one is better than the other. But I do think it has, uh, the end result, it has made me uh, a better candidate, uh, a better prospective judge to be able to say, yeah, I've seen uh, the court work in that respect, like I said before, win and lose, and now uh, just doing the right thing for all parties involved. I did, we should have started the debate just having you guys ask questions to me. <laughs> Jerry Farber, what do you got for Amerika Garcia? Well, again, uh, again, Amerika and I, we've been um, friends for you know decades. We actually yeah. were in the same building, 129 Church, for the longest while. Right. Uh, I guess my question to you is, um, beyond you know what happens on November 8th, uh, win or, or lose, um, do you f- still feel that you'd be – uh, an important part of that probate experience as a conservator, as a, a person that's uh, being appointed uh, to do uh, do the work that you've been doing. Oh no, absolutely. I, I, that's a good question, though. Uh, but absolutely, um, I deeply feel that what we do in probate really, oops, really involves everyone's life to a degree that uh, just being an attorney is not not kind of, for me. For me personally, is not good enough. Um, I, I've done all the other areas of law. I always return back to probate and say, you know, here I'm making a difference. Um, when I'm representing someone in probate, whether it be a mom and a dad who are really trying to do something or the conservatee or, or a child who's a minor who really has no way of saying one way or the other what's going to happen to them, and we're in there making decisions for their entire life. We, we come in with a, with a child who's a newborn, and, and mom can't take care of her, and, and maybe grandma can, or maybe the, the other parents can, maybe the dad can, and we have to figure all of that out. That's when I feel useful. That's when I know going to law school was what I should have done. That's when I know that I'm making a difference in the community because not every area of law do we do that. I mean, guys doing personal injury cases, they're great guys. They're smart. They're, I, no, no offense, and they're probably making way more money than we do. Um, but I don't know that they're having the impact that we have. Not to tell a story again, but... I, I had the I've been doing this long enough where I had the experience where I had represented a young, a young lady out of the East Haven before the children's court was put together out of the East Haven probate court, and the uh, she was about four years old at the time. We did it. Everybody who's comfortable, we put in a guardian. Her grandparents, no problem. Three years later, she's seven years old. Her grandmother dies. We have to be back in court. We couldn't find someone. We're struggling. This little girl and I had conversations, just talking. I never experienced, you know, I, I tried to give them as much as I can because it's a child. You're trying to explain things. Well, I had children the same age at the time. Um, to just kind of, she came to me 10 years later and told me that she was going to college because of my conversation with her. Now, I had had just about no interaction from when she was 7 to, to 17. Um, 
but she she was uh, volunteering at the probate court in East Haven, and she caught me and she goes, "I know you," and I did not know her. I I wish I could have. I wish you, you know, but she had changed so much. The young lady says to me, "You were the only one that listened to everything I said." Probate. I mean, the, the judge didn't listen. I said, I, "You know, the judge didn't even see you." She goes, "No," but they had a person come, which was DCF. DCF came to the house. They didn't listen to what I wanted. You were the only one who listened to me, and you made this happen for me, and I'm going to go to law school someday for you. And, I, I, you know, that takes your heart away. And you say, wow, that's incredible that you could have so much of an impact on a 7-year-old um, and that she would remember that for 10 years. That's so the, answer, the short answer to your question is, yeah, I don't plan on leaving no matter if I get this job or not. Um, I certainly want to do it from that aspect. But I think we have such a great impact on people. Again, the children, the elderly, um, the mentally ill. I, I, I couldn't do it. I don't know what else I could do, Jerry. All right. Thank so, you for the question, though. <laughs> thank you, guys. So let's do a little wrap-up here. Run out of time. You get 60 seconds, and I am going to time it. Okay. But there will not be oh. any kind of uh, hat or, or stick to, to push you out if you're two seconds over. I'm going to start with Gerald Barber, former uh, final statement about why you should, people should vote for you on November 8th as the probate judge. Uh, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Emerica, for this process. Um, I believe you should uh, vote for me for the next New Haven Probate Court uh, for three reasons. I am connected to this community. Um, I went to Hopkins School. I played uh, Little League Ball, Bowen Field. Uh, I pastored a church in Dwight, and I've been a, a city attorney and uh, a practitioner here in New Haven uh, for a absent law school and college for my entire life. So there's a connectedness I care uh, even in my nonprofit work, I think that's important. Also, um, I'm competent. I know what we're talking about. Uh, I'm an experienced attorney. Uh, I know the law. I know how to apply it. I know how to uh, to make it work. Uh, and I care. I think that's the, the biggest reason that I, I care not only for my clients, but caring to do the right thing. Uh, you know, I, uh, I'm a man of faith, and I, I do believe that that should uh, uh, move our actions. So notwithstanding the parties, notwithstanding independents, uh, Democrats, I do believe that it's important to, to be the next probate judge. All right. Right in there. One minute, five seconds. Way to go. Final statement, Amarico Karsia. Uh, thank you. It might be a little longer. I don't know. Uh, so my name is Amarico Karsia. I'd like to thank you for the opportunity to speak about the position of probate judge. Um, as you've already heard, Judge Keith Graves um, is retiring. He's been the city judge for the last five years. Um, I'm asking for your support and your vote in my run to be the judge of probate in the city of New Haven. Uh, the probate judge is vital to the city. The judge can be involved in a person's life from cradle to grave, making decisions for children from birth to childhood to adulthood, um, making altering life-altering decisions for the sick and the elderly. I've been an attorney for 28 years in New Haven, working alongside Judge Keyes, Judge Graves, as well as many other of the area's probate judges. Um, the judges have appointed me in every position as an attorney that the court can, can, can appoint someone. I have represented children, mothers, fathers, mentally ill, people with intellectual disabilities, guardians, conservators, conserved persons. Um, I've also participated in wills. Okay, wrap up. All right. All right. Well, you can finish sentence. Well, that's okay. Um, <laughs> okay. So, Thanks. Uh, no worries. Uh, All right. So anyway, I want to thank everybody for listening today. I want to hold on a second. Can I make one last statement? Yeah. All right. So I would I would ask the, ask them to vote for me because Karsha cares for the children, parents, caregivers, community, people, and you. Thank you for your support. Well, I love that you both talked about caring. 
you're running for an office where you got to care about people, and you obviously care about the office. And it was just such a pleasure to chat with you. This went twice as long as we were anticipating because oh. you guys had a lot to say. And it was wonderful. I learned a lot about it, about sure. you two as individuals and about why this office matters. Okay. So carry on, folks. Thanks for listening to the great debate for probate judge in New Haven, Gerald Barber and Amerigo Carcia. Thanks to Harry Drost, back working the controls after a much-deserved break. And we're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience, performing I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night long at WNHH New Haven's home for community radio.